Welcome to Stalking Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Oh, that was a big sigh for a Monday. It's a what Monday. Happened? Nothing. Did you Just... go to a beach that made you old? Or something like I, that? No? I don't know. I, I feel like once I hit 22, I was on a beach that made me older every day. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about your experience seeing oh, old. old, but, uh, old. That's for later in the... Alex... That's, what I, that's what I meant. Not like going to the ocean and getting wrinkled like, <laughs> feet and hands, but maybe that flew over the, your head. Oh, you oh, didn't no. go to a beach that made you old. Oh, okay, got it. <laughs> no, I, I, I got the joke. I've got I I've been loving this meme that Alex and I have been saying it all the time, and it's replaced the previous old joke, which is just me being, been me shouting old at her at random points throughout the week. So uh, so now what do you say? Do you tell her, did you go to a beach that made you old? Or? That, or I just say old a bunch still, or sometimes I'll shout pig. <laughs> <laughs> Truffle! <laughs> Whatever, that's funny. Hey, my, my number one and number two films of the year so far are pig and old, so... Here we are. Yeah, it sounds like just a, th- a three-letter word. Mm-hmm. Three, three-letter <laughs> word, yeah. Three-letter words, I guess. Is there anything else like that coming out that you want? Coda. Well, Coda is four. I saw. Have you have you seen the trailer for Coda? No. I haven't seen it until I went to the movies this weekend, and I saw it. It looks great, and it it has Eugenio Derbez on it, who is like. He started doing comedy in Mexican TV, like he, he did like sketches where he had like characters, very over-the-top characters. And I've been thinking about him because he was like the gag sideshow that usually went to the Olympics. And you know, in every like primetime recap of everything that happened in the Olympics, he they would show like a, a thing that he did during the day, you know? Mm-hmm. And as I was looking at the Olympics uh, yesterday and the day before, which we're going to talk about, I was like, oh, I wonder if he's doing it. And then Koda comes in and he plays like a Berkeley music school teacher. I was like, what? Look at that. That's him. How did I not know about this? We talked about Koda and Sundance before and, and he's like a pretty major. Anyway. That's funny. Very big tangent to start this. Hey, I just looked at my list of stuff coming out this year and no more three letter names, but I can shout Dune or Blonde. So I'll keep <laughs> just doing take out the. Take take out the three on Dune, the three, the E. Just do Dune or Sola. Did you watch Sola already? Zola. Oh yeah. Anyway, nice or don't. You don't have. Yeah. <laughs> so we have another interesting uh, episode this week, trying to catch up with everything that happened. Uh, I think this was an interesting one because I feel like this is one of the first ones that most of these topics we haven't discussed, even at a high level. On our, you know, in our text messages or even in our calls. So it might be a lot of us reacting to each other, which should be fun. Hey, a lot of these, we also haven't quite touched the subjects like this before. So I'm excited to dig nice. in. Though, let's start off with something which is a, just a repeat of last week. So we talked about Black Widow's numbers plummeting last week. Now we're going to talk about Space Jam's numbers plummeting last week in the same dumb takes about cannibalization in the streaming world you want to talk about this yeah so apparently space jump went down by 77 percent people were saying that it was the end of the world last week because 
what was Black Widow? 67, 69. Yeah. And then, yeah, more, I mean, people talk about cannibalization like it's inherently a bad thing. But it's like if you, <laughs> the example, I don't know, that came to mind when I was reading this article by Variety earlier today was, if you buy lunch every weekday and you spend $20 every weekday and then you change to taking your own lunch, that is technically cannibalizing yeah. your lunch spend. That doesn't mean it's bad. Like, they cannibalizing and less people singing in theaters, but more people singing somewhere else is not necessarily a negative. So, I don't know if NATO is also behind them. Again, not the military, but the theater association with, like, variety, you want to play nice or anything like that, and then everyone is, like, protecting them. But it seems to be very widespread. I mean, also... I don't know that there's... I don't know if you could even understand what I was trying to say there, but innovators dilemma. You said it too close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is I, yeah, the I, same thing we talk about all the time here. Which I I don't think this is going to be a pricing innovation that actually saves Warner Brothers, but like you got to kill some babies in order to make a new one. Oh my god, such an aggressive metaphor. <laughs> Couldn't you say like you have to? I don't know them in English, but like knead the dough or, you know, get your fingers dirty in the mouth to build some clay or you have to kill some babies. Babies to make a new one. Yep. That's that's our episode title right there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. We're going to get taken down. But yeah. Anyway, it's like, I feel like this is one of the things where we tend to lose the forest for the trees, which is like, yeah, there is this declining change in theater and distribution. It's like, how long has theater distribution existed? For 100 years, mm-hmm. let's say. Do, did we expect the world to look exactly the same in 100 years? Absolutely not, right? And it's also impossible to think that everything is just going to happen overnight. So it's normal for things to start shifting, right? We, we've known for years, you talk about it every week of the first weekend, it's always the most money, and then it's yeah. going to drop, and then it's going to drop even more. And that's fine. And that's just a new normal and it's the business and the market adapting to the new way the game is played. If NATO had existed and theater owners <laughs> there meant like old stage theaters back in 1910 or whatever, they probably would have released press releases talking about how movies were cannibalizing the ability to to put things on a physical theatrical stage because it's taking up time in the theater. Like, yeah, I don't want the the movies to die. I want to be able to go to a theater. I've really been enjoying being able to go back to theaters, but the market's not there. It's becoming increasingly urban, centralized activity. It's becoming mm-hmm. more of a niche activity, which I think we're going to get to into later this episode, where there is a market for this. There is going to be a market for this, and there is an, a celebration of the art form. But m- movies like Space Jam, A New Legacy, are not what's going to fill the art houses of the future in order to make people love this. I mean, unless people ironically fall in love with this, like... They seem to have with, uh, or unironically fall in love with us like they have with M. Night Shyamalan. So, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like a regular, normal things changing. And 
I think when I think uh, this is getting too theoretical, mm-hmm. but when you think of the value chain of things and how the distribution, the supply chain works, the movies are still going to get made. Just the ways they're getting consumed is different. That's disrupting things in the middle, but that doesn't mean, you know, making movies is not a business anymore, or it's not yeah. even such a good business anymore. It does absolutely change things, but like, just not as, not as fast. But connected to that, I don't know. The one thing that I texted you this week was that I listened to the Bill Simmons podcast and he had Matt Damon. Were you able to, to catch what they talked about? I just wanted to bring up one thing they talked about. I wasn't. Which, Sorry. Which was. Bring it up. Okay. No, all good. Again, these are two folks talking from the, the highest seats in the house. So, grain of salt. But at least, uh, you know, Matt Damon, uh, Bill asks Matt, hey, so you haven't done any movies with Netflix or, you know, even HBO Max. HBO, I think he did Behind the Candelabra and kind of that's it. And he's like, would you be interested in doing that? And he's like, yeah, I think so. Like, if the story is right, blah, blah. And he's like, how do you see the market? And he's like, yeah, I'm seeing all of these actors and these directors taking these humongous, like, deals, you know, five-year deals, 10-year deals, the Scorsese's, the Fincher's, everyone. And and he was saying, like, you know, when I think of... I'm speaking of my Damon. When he thinks of his generation of actors, so it's him, you know, Ben Affleck, Leo, uh, Edward Norton, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, the early 90s, he says, I don't know if the movies that made us who we are are getting made. They're, they're getting made right now, but the way that people are accessing is just so different. And I don't know yeah. if the next generation of actors is going to get that same... is going to be created because... Everything is becoming so top-heavy with some of the key actors. And I just thought it was like, from the perspective of the actor, it was just something that I hadn't thought about. That, again, talking about the changing market and landscape was just a new wrinkle. So I'd really like to take the music industry as a standards bearer for what happens to film and TV five, ten years later. The last 30, 40 years has been a pretty consistent set of tea leaves that helps you kind of understand where it's going. And I imagine mm-hmm. we've, we've seen sort of the first wave of TV creators like the showrunners of Broad City or of High Maintenance starting out on YouTube, honing their craft there, and then moving to streaming or moving to the big leagues with Comedy Central and being able to, to thrive there. And I think, yeah, exactly. Like you have YouTube yeah. stars going on to, to do that. And I think we're going to see the same thing with like the, the little Nas's of the world where they go viral mm-hmm. through just kind of the memification of, of their life and their personas and their, their music and use that as a launching pad to their own success in order to, to work in the traditional in- industry. And I think, the same thing's going to happen here where the filmmaking talent and acting talent, they're going to emerge from TikTok, from YouTube, and have a launching pad from these non-traditional means into the traditional world and be able to kind of work in this field. But also that pipeline is so different than what, I mean, look at Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon. They came in because they were wunderkinds who were kind of acting and they wrote a really good screenplay and got nominated mm-hmm. for an Oscar. Like 
That's how they broke into the industry when everyone was going insane with throwing money as much as they could in the 90s because Harvey Weinstein was throwing money everywhere. Same thing's going to happen here is somebody's going to be trying to cultivate this new generation of talent that's emerging from new places and trying to find ways to access that new talent. It's going to take off and it's going to go from here. And it's not going to die. It's just going to change. And I'm sure people in the 90s were just as freaked out about two kids from Boston writing a screenplay and getting an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think something that comes to mind is the, which is the same as before, right? It's just changing. It doesn't mean it's bad mm-hmm. inherently just because it's different. But something that has come to mind when I think of, maybe not Lil Nas, right? But some of these YouTube stars is, I feel like there is a different factor of like intentionality yes. of, Right? Like, Ben and Matt probably were like, we want to be actors. Mm-hmm. We've been doing this for years. We haven't broken, but now let's try them. And this is how they got. Versus somebody else, which is like, well, I became a YouTube star because of X or Y or Z, right? I was good at whatever it was of how they started. Then they reached fame, and then they became actors. And it's like, again, that doesn't mean it's bad. But just the way that these careers are formed are more serendipitously. It, it doesn't devalue them, but yeah. it's just like... A, a different transition and also a different way of seeing projects and the way they might decide what they want to do or, or what they don't want to do or yeah just in- interesting it is interesting and i guess we could take like an olivia rodrigo as an example of that where she mm-hmm. yeah. is in this very little washed compared to most things disney channel or disney plus show she pops there she's able to come up with a good single and then release an album based on that I mean, you could cynically say that this is just the 2021 version of the, like, Hillary Duff 2003 yeah. come clean era, you know? Yeah. But I don't think Disney has enough clout in the music industry or with teenagers in what's actually cool versus what's kind of the, the, the dominant culture to mint a pop star in the same way. I think her mm-hmm. success is more de- tied to what you're saying, where she kind of fell into having the platform for it tried something new and it took off and now she's doing really well yeah yeah which that's a good point like it's always happened there's always been examples that are different yeah but i I do think that you're right in that it's happening the blurring of these platforms the blurring of these payment models and the the blurring of, of who owns what and is trying to promote what makes it so that people are more mutable between careers and industries now than ever before right people follow people whatever they do yes right if you're a fan of jake paul i guess you're a fan of jake paul the boxer or whatever he's trying to do i never understood that like let's look at space jam i I was listening to blank check today and they were talking Mm -hmm. about space jam a new legacy this week and one of the things they were talking about is how different a star lebron james is from michael jordan where michael jordan was an icon and mm-hmm. inadvertently became a fashion icon, but it was still always tied to the court and to his performance and to who he was as a basketball and baseball player to a hilariously <laughs> lesser extent. Whereas yeah. LeBron, like so much of his power is derived from his own persona off the court, just as much it is as it is on the court and what he's done for the city of Cleveland or for what he's done with schools or other things that he actively tries to champion. And it's a cult of personality based around being 
an early influencer before we had a word for that. And it's just a different model of celebrity and fame than we had in the late 90s when you had Jordan and Ben and, and Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of top-heavy things, Universal, do you see this news? They paid $400 million dollars for three Exorcist movies, which follows on the, you know, 450 for two Knives Out. I think uh -huh. 125 was paid for Coming to America. 200 million was paid for the Tomorrow Wars or whatever Chris Pratt movies that is, that it was plastered all over Times Square now that I was in New York last week. I'm 400. Yeah. I mean, I get 400 million dollars doesn't mean anything. It means like that includes kind of the budget and the this new version of the world just sounds more than what it actually is. I, what I thought was interesting was that it's Bloomhouse, which kind of came from, came to fame for like, not necessarily indie, but, you know, a low budget take on new mm -hmm. stories. But yeah, they're doing three exorcist movies. Apparently the, the second and the third one potentially going straight to Peacock. Uh, yeah. Do you have any connection to the exorcist? Like, growing up, I remember like, I had a couple of friends that were like, oh, you know, this is the movie and watching it and be like, yeah, you know, iconic in some sense, but first horror movie to be nominated for an Oscar for best movie. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I understand things like that, but does this dog do anything to you? So this is a, a strange announcement. It's, it's strange because of how, not how expensive it is, but how prestige it's trying mm -hmm. to be and how much it is. So the exorcist is always on a short, like if you made a short list of the, the great, like respected horror films, mm -hmm. like, yeah, it would be like, I'm not even talking about like the shining because obviously the like, Kubrick's his own things, but I'm talking about like the Halloween Texas chainsaw massacre, black Christmas, like these movies that were like disruptive, massive, like successes in their own ways, but are also like kind of, well regarded as great film and not just like horror schlock mm -hmm. uh like exorcist is top of that list it's an excellent movie uh free it's the only friedkin film i've seen i really am dying to see his film sorcerer which i've seen half of and loved but fell asleep not because it was boring but because it was like two in the morning but it's it's a well-directed well-made film that's like terrifying and really genre defining and so there's that prestige element of it uh you've got david gordon green attached to direct and develop it which is fascinating mm -hmm. because he's he's got this indie drama phase of his career then he goes over to pineapple express uh he does some weird stuff like bland indie dramas like our brand is crisis uh he Slides into doing a bunch of comedies with Danny McBride, like Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. And then he directs Halloween in 2018, a reboot of another great horror mm -hmm. franchise and a great film. And I haven't seen it. By all accounts, it's an excellent movie. And Halloween Kill, it's Halloween Kills is the second one, I believe. That one is premiering at Venice this year. Like, that mm -hmm. is how well-regarded David Gordon Green mm -hmm. and his management of the Halloween franchise has become since his, the first film it was released. And I did just confirm it's Halloween kills. So that's the pedigree in which they're bringing in. Uh, they have 
an Oscar winner, Ellen Burstyn, incredible actress who was in The Exorcist in nineteen seventy three. She's coming yeah. back to reprise her role, which is interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just not a reboot, right? It's, it's like the like the Buzz like Year. This is not a it's not a reboot or not. A... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's about the it's about the actual man The Exorcist was based on, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just weirdly a hot, like a very high end, classy move for in in a world in which most we've got to shell up money to develop IP stuff looks like Space Jam Undo Legacy. That's right. what's weird and about think, this. Yeah, but that's where I was going because I think when from that perspective you feel the Bloom House. Right, you feel the the get out of the world. Right. Get out, split, the perch, all of the purges. Candyman. Oh, old? Blumhouse? Oh yeah, Candyman, Ma, Oz. Old so is universal. It's not, it's not Blumhouse to my, okay. my knowledge. But they did do split and they didn't do oh they do they did glass. It In is twenty nineteen it was announced that Blumhouse would partner with Mattel Films to produce a magic eight ball. Movie? Incredible. What? Is okay. this the craziest line I've ever read on Wikipedia? Okay, this anyway. ma- this Mattel deal is the strict... <laughs> uh, okay, like this Exorcist thing, I don't really have any more to say here, except it's weird, it's a lot of money, it's on trend. Can we just tangent about this Mattel thing for a second? I, this is my favorite line. I, I literally uh, think yeah. I've ever read in my life. This is fantastic. That's incredible. Please. Well, because... So, I didn't know about this... But this is following the fact that Greta Gerwig is, I believe, now... Is she now directing the Barbie movie? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Margot Robbie is producing a Greta Gerwig-directed and penned Barbie film. Daniel Kaluuya has been pushing up a Barney film, like, uphill for years. Like, as part of this. Like, this premium mattel thing is just super bizarre it's the same feeling that i have with like variety and nato pushing variety to say things like who's behind this yeah who's getting greater working and bloomhouse and daniel kaluuya to care about mattel well has what's happening is, you know like okay so a ton of dollars all right so yeah and we've talked on here about the like the crazy deal with Universal that Hasbro made based on the Transformers success that ended up with like Battleship costing four hundred million dollars. Like we've talked about that on here, where it's just these deals get made and they're so strange. And so this one is with Warner Brothers, and just I, I don't. It's so weird that people think that this property of just like legacy toys can carry anything beyond you know. Barbie and the Nutcracker, these terrible made to made for DVD movies. That's where this belongs. Like, we don't need Greta Gerwig directing the definitive take on like Barbie. Please, no. Are the early twenties gonna be kind of the the like the the years where all of the great directors took like a vacation? Greta Gerwig doing this. Our favorite Womp Barry Jenkins with the Lion King two. What is happening? Anyway, you just anyway. you have to make. I have to. 
You have to make one for them so you can make one for you, maybe. Even though that doesn't seem to be working out for Mm. most people. (laughs) But, like, these folks, all of the movies that they make are one for you. Right? They don't... Yes. You don't need them to make one for me. Everything that they do is going to be great. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> it's just... Okay, yeah. All right, let's put a pen in, in this conversation before we get too but depressed about things. Speaking... But, wow. No, but, I mean, speaking of great directors or directors that we really like doing movies that might disappoint us to our core, Jungle Cruise opened in <laughs> Disneyland, which was just, I mean... I think you, you have the connection with the, with the director, right? Yes. This is your your side of the world. Yeah, I I mean I I I don't really say I have a connection with Colotzera. Well, okay, still. But I I do think Nonstop is one of the most underrated movies I've ever seen. I adore Nonstop. It's Liam Neeson, Gillian Moore, Scoot McNary, and Michelle Dockery. Like that's incredible. Um it's kind of a inversion of everything it's it's an inversion of the typical Liam Neeson action film where he's like this hyper competent dude and instead he's just kind of an incompetent drunk on an airplane trying to figure this out it's it's a great movie you need to see it and i have i haven't seen the shallows i really want to see the shallows because i've heard it's excellent in the same way where it's just so much better than it should be so when they announced jungle cruise i was very on board just with this dude but I don't know. Have you have reviews come out on it yet? No, I think they're still under the Disney embargo. Oh yeah, which these late seems like a pretty bad when, win. When Disney embargoes things and they're embargoed until the last second like this, you know it's not good because you know this they want the like Black Pre-sense. Widow was off embargo yeah. like a week before it came out. Yeah, but what is it with with Jomi and he likes doing a lot of movies in the row with the same person. Like Orphan or No Nonstop and Run All Night, and then he skips the shallow for the commuter are all Liam Neeson. Yep. And then he's doing Jungle Cruise, and then next year he's doing Black Adam, also with The Rock. He has like his pen pals. Uh, yeah, I. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not reading too much into it. It's just interesting when somebody makes five movies with the same actor in a row. <laughs> it is interesting, but I but so much of that is also I think a lot of these directors hitching themselves to a star. Like you got. Got Doug Lyman and Christopher McQuarrie hitching themselves to the the Tom Cruise train, and as much like that is a symbiotic relationship for Cruise because these are people that can hit his level, match his intensity, understand innately what he wants and needs, and write to him as a character, as a persona. I think The Rock is is he's no Tom Cruise as far as his <laughs> his acting ability or his his star power, to be completely honest, but he thinks he's tom cruise so he would try to cultivate the same thing it doesn't surprise me that he or a liam nason would try and keep guys in their stable that they like but it isn't it is an interesting data point for sure yeah the the directors catching up with the trains of other people is like wes anderson with like everyone who would you say are like the top three? When I think of Wes Anderson, I think of Bill Murray, mm-hmm. Owen Wilson, and maybe William Defoe, but also like like Tilda's uh, kind of in there sometimes. Yeah, Tilda Swinson, uh, uh, Adam Bro- Adam Adam Brody. Mm-hmm. Seen a couple, most of them. 
Is Charles Finesse in most of them? No. Anyway. Uh, no, he's only Ray, Budapest. Rafe right? Fine. Charles Finesse. Oh my god. <laughs> Rafe Fine is in one uh, of his films. Voldemort, the, sorry. Yes. Yeah, though I... I it is in, it is great. It's just I can't believe that his name is pronounced Rafi when it looks like Rafian. <laughs> Sorry, Rail Fine. Oh, I talk about butcher. Ch- Charles, yes, Charles Viennes is in in one. Talk He's about quite killing. Good. Talk about talk about killing two babies. Um. <laughs> anyway, I was just mentioning the Jungle Cruise because it opened in Disneyland, which I mean, it's just cool, and they didn't kill the right to put them in it, at least not yet, and. I'll take it. And they arrived in the little boat. And I thought it was nice. And this is the nice period that we get to still keep our hope until Friday or whenever the embargo is over. Which I'm guessing is going to be like tomorrow. Yeah, I will not be seeing that this weekend. I will probably be seeing the Green Knight and maybe Stillwater this weekend. We will see. But I wanted to watch Green Knight on Thursday. David Lowry... The Pit Dragon coming for the medieval poem. It looks great. I can't wait. The reviews are fantastic. It, I was thinking of going to the premiere on Thursday, but I, I'm moving. But yeah, I, I can't wait. No. It looks great. Alex has a special attachment to, to Lowry because, one, he's a, a phenomenal filmmaker. Ghost Story is a mutual favorite of the two of ours. But Lowry's whole family is part of this small Texas Catholic community centered around the University of Dallas in Irving, which is Alex's mm. alma mater. And Lowry's... Where you got married? Yeah, that's actually the, the church we got married in. You've actually been to this place, so I forgot. Oh. That's, that's wild. So now Lowry's... I know this piece of trivia about David Lowry when I go to Jeopardy. I'm going to be able to answer this. So his father is a professor at the University of Dallas. His whole family has been kind of around Irving, Texas, and so Lowry is a, a favorite son of this small Dallas suburb of Irving, Texas. So Alex and the what is it? The Tale of Sir Guywin is is actually taught at the University of Dallas as one of the mandatory classics they have to read. So Alex is just sort of feeling very attached to this from a nostalgia of her alma mater. Okay, that's, that's cool. That's great. So I'm excited to see that. Yeah, that's very fun. Do you have any interesting data point like that about? Uh... Stillwater, because that if you look at the, if you just look at the poster, I think it looks way different from what it seems like it is. He was also talking about it with Bill Simmons. Hey, I was in Stillwater and Irving in the same weekend, actually in the same set of twenty four hours a few weeks ago, because I went to a wedding in Stillwater, which is where Oklahoma State University is in Oklahoma. That is the titular town of this film and where his character is from. It doesn't really seem to take place in Stillwater much, but there is a, a, so, a shot of him at Sonic, which is from Stillwater. That's where the first Sonic was. So that is That's my good. actual fun fact about Stillwater, is that is the okay, home of Sonic. So. Yeah, and appa- apparently something happened and they go to Marseille in France. His daughter gets implicated in a murder, I think. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm I like Matt Damon. I watch it. Yeah. yeah now, I'm, I'm, now that I'm in Matt Damon's backyard, need to support him. You're talking about David Lowry being the adopted son. Well, not adopted, the actual son of Irving. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck here are uh, another level. And, hey, I was going to say Spotlight is 
was the the previous film that Tom McCarthy directed, but it actually isn't. His previous film was the Disney Plus movie Timmy Failure. <laughs> he made that. He did spotlight Timmy Failure Stillwater. Even Wilder is the film that he made that was released months before Spotlight was the Adam Sandler fil- children's film The Cobbler, which has horrific reviews. So, hey, I guess that's just his his style as he makes a a kids film, and then yeah, he also has story cre- he... he has story credits yes. on Up and Nutcracker. I was gonna the say, I remember it. <laughs> I remember about Up from yeah, yeah. I remember looking at him in Spotlight One and being like, wait, he has a story. <laughs> what a fun! We could pivot the the podcast to do like analysis of the the strangest. This is an episode idea. We need to find our top five, like two or three, or like a year of a yeah. filmmaker, of an actor that did the weirdest things in a row. Because I think Spotlight, uh, Timmy Failure, and Stillwater could be up there. With uh, I'm also seeing now our writer credit for Christopher Robin. Adam yeah. Cracker, the affirmation. Yeah. It is a bizarre career. Win-win is supposed to be excellent. The station agent is also supposed to be excellent, and the visitor is as well. So, I'm I'm here to see more Tom McCarthy films, but what a strange career he has had in Hollywood. Fantastic. Yeah, crazy. Okay, uh, moving into, I mean, I don't know if it's the main topic. It's also kind of news, but I just had way too much to talk about this. The place where I was supposed to be last year, and the place where I was supposed to be right now, the Olympics in Tokyo, Japan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are taking place. And we've talked about how with TV and with streaming and, you know, the the biggest break between traditional cable and streaming was the ability to not be constrained by one by programming and only having one place where you could put content and now being able to put all the content and let people choose. And one of the promises of this was... It's going to be awesome for consumers because they're going to be able to choose what to watch and when to watch it. And I can't believe what a botched opportunity NBC is doing with the Olympics. They touted so much that they have it, that you're going to be able to see it on Peacock and in the NBC Sports app and on, the, on their channel. It's a mess. I don't know. Have you been watching anything for the Olympics? No, I haven't. Okay, they- it's... I've watched Olympics in the past, but I don't know. They were like 2008 when everyone's everyone in the world is watching Michael Phelps try to win eight gold medals. It's right. There's not a narrative I'm super attached to with this 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 thing, and quite frankly, I've kind of forgot about it because of the pushback. The, the past year, just the past year, and <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not watching much of it. But I can speak from historical experience and trying to watch the digital Olympics. It is always been a mess and it's fascinating that it has not improved at all this is crazy i mean on one side i'm like okay i don't have cable but i have peacock and the place where i'm saying it has broadcast so it has nbc the local version of nbc first thing incredibly difficult to even online find what they're broadcasting what is live and what is available where even when you go to peacock whatever you can see in peacock is different from what you can see in nbc on the broadcast channel. They have most of, a ton of stuff in the in USA, in the channel USA, like the premium cable channel. 
they there is this weird thing in the US that is of course driven by primetime that I just can't understand how it's still happening where most of the things they don't broadcast and they just broadcast at primetime. So even if something happened yesterday at 2 a.m. and the whole world knows what happened because of the internet, they just... So right now they're broadcasting the men's gymnastic finals, which was, no joke, 20 hours ago. And sure, it doesn't say live, but Uh it's like, what are you doing? There are things happening live right now. And you're now passing things from yesterday instead of showing what's today, which is very different from... I mean, even growing up in Mexico, this is not... We had the, you know, the summary hour at the end of the day for primetime, but it wasn't like, we're just going to show you whatever. Yeah. I'm mad at this. I wanted to enjoy them. Oh, man. What is happening? Let me take a breath. It's... I want to kind of bring this as a, a way to talk about the news last week that you brought up at the very end around Viacom and Comcast talking and floating the idea of merging Peacock and Paramount Plus in some way. Because the fascinating thing is that they are tied to legacy broadcasters. They're tied to... So the, the reason they're tied to legacy broadcasters is because of antitrust rulings and mm-hmm. rules from the, the 50s and 60s that said that content producers cannot own the airwaves that they were broadcasting over for the same reason they couldn't own theaters or other distribution methods until recently. These are different laws and different rules than the Paramount decrees that we've been talking about. But all in all, they have to work with independent networks of owners that own these stations that broadcast over-the-air signals for free or very cheap. And with that, that complicates their ability to actually do anything because these Olympics contracts were written years ago when they renewed the rights with the IOC. Yeah. They were not put in place a month ago. So all of these distributors, essentially, the people that own the airwaves and own these broadcast stations, have the legal right to say, hey, you can't allow access to any of this content on demand live unless it's airing in prime time in the united states because that limits our ability to sell ads on our side obviously does does nbc comcast actually care about these companies selling ads not at all there's a thorn in their side because the justice department years ago said that they had to do this so or the fcc i guess so so with that it's it's just fascinating that they're still hindered in their ability to actually broadcast and distribute this content in a way that would be less user or hostile, that would promote Peacock and would get people to sign up for the, these these services because they're just so hindered by these legacy rules that exist for a good reason. But <laughs> I think all this does is, is foment hatred in the NBC coffers and want, want them to try and kill this. Yeah, because even... I feel like even with that, right? All of this is driven by, I mean, there's compliance on the white side, but what's driving the small owners of the airwaves pushing is money, right? Yeah. And it feels like there is a scenario of this where everyone is better off by doing, by working together and figuring it out. 
whether that is NBCU getting to a deal with the regionals where they pay them or they charge them less or whatever for the Olympics, or they at least organize their website to tell you where things are yeah. and what is life. But, I mean, to that point, even uh, favorite point of stocking development, no apples to apples comparisons, streaming wars, but exactly right what you're saying. The NBC, on one side, they are constrained by this, but I'm sure there are also some decisions where they say most of the money that we still get is coming from broadcast. Yeah. It's not on our best interest to move everyone to Peacock when even a Warner Brothers or even a Disney that makes a ton of money from Disney Junior and ESPN are saying no. Exactly the point of right now things are not mature is we need to invest in them. Yeah. And right now with NBC is the opposite. Is Peacock is not mature, so it's not worth the trouble to kill or to mess with our distributions on the other side, and then not doing it. And I was I was just tweeting with Alex Sherman from CNBC about this earlier today. I was like, this is ridiculous. It, it is. And it's... <laughs> I might just be very stressed and uh, angry that I wasn't able to go. No, I mean, yeah, you, you should be. And you, I, I'm <laughs> bummed you weren't able to go to Japan and... Let us have Go our to Tokyo Disney Disney Z uh, episode, but yes. yeah, it's 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 really as much as we rag on Netflix or even rag on Disney, it is nice that at least those companies are more and more aligned behind vertical strategies that make sense for their business, rather than trying to min max across their entire business to make like everything the most profitable versus the most long-term strategic sense yeah and i think that's why you know i do think it has power where some of these other companies say right hbo max says we're going day and date or disney says we're doing premier access even if it looks like something so natural and like oh yeah this is obvious it's like well a lot of these huge companies are not doing it like it still takes either a diversion in strategy and saying like, no, we're going all in because this is the future and this is what needs to grow right uh-huh. now. Versus, I, I feel like that's literally what they're saying now. It's like, well, it's not worth right now. Pico is still very, very small. Let's not fight those fights yet. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. It's like, yeah, sure, when you lose the train and you have to partner with CBS anywhere internationally because none of you have any volume. So are you telling me that NBC needs to kill some babies so they can make a new one. No, don't kill some babies. Is that is is that wait? Pause. Is that actually a metaphor? Why would you kill babies to make other babies? I'm like just, I'm mixing like three metaphors here. Like kill your darlings is the, or kill your babies is like the one statement idiom there. That's like ah, oh, you have to kill kill them. Like it's my baby, I'm gonna kill it, whatever. But kill your babies to make some new ones is not the standard phrasing there okay so i'm not gonna say it because it feels dirty but yes that's what i'm saying there is definitely some hard decisions on things that have been very important for them for a long time but if they want to invest in the future this was the experience it's literally once every four years well except now that it's covered and now it's once every three years for the next three years but this was the chance we talked about this when amazon acquired thursday night football this was the chance to have an awesome experience with 10 tiles in peacock Choose whatever you want, you know, choose the camera, do whatever. This was the event to do it. And they were like, eh. 
We have the monopoly. Nobody else is competing with us. The only place to watch it in the US is with us. Eh. So NBC's, I just quickly searched this. NBC's contract with the IOC, $8 billion extension from May 2014 through 2032. So they are locked in into whatever deals they signed with their broadcasters in 2014 through 2032 unless they renegotiate. So I was thinking in the back back of my mind, like maybe, you know, maybe they'll torch things with the 2022 Winter Olympics because nobody watches the Winter Olympics. So the (laughs) broadcasters aren't going to get mad that they're not getting their ad revenue because they're not getting that much ad revenue anyway. I mean, people watch them, but not the same as the the Summer Olympics. It's always a dip in the ratings. So, but even then, now 2032 is a long way away. They've got to keep these people happy in order to keep the... Does it say? Does money. it say? Does it have any more detail around their involvement? So it says NBC plus the original networks eight billion dollars. So okay. Because in my mind, I mean, well, you look right. All of this is, you know, the complicated part of it's NBC, what it's not, and then if on cable you get NBC, then you can sign in online to the NBC app and say, yeah, I have NBC, but it's the regional one. But then you get access to everything. But you could get access to the regional one over the air with an antenna that it's free. Yeah. So I can't find anything quickly about the broadcasters, but I did find an interesting tidbit, which is that that $8 billion is a significant source of revenue for the IOC. So with that, the IOC has given NBC veto power over quite a bit of the schedule so that they can choose the, the events that are in American prime so. time. I thought so too, but like the finals, the gymnastics yeah. women's team finals, it could have been in the morning. Yeah. So like now, in, so the morning of Japan, so like around this time in the US. Instead, it's tomorrow at 6.45 a.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern. Well, It's at 3.45 a.m. Pacific. Why are they doing the better for? What are they using it for? And then they're not going to broadcast it until tomorrow night. <laughs> they're killing the wrong babies. Oh, I'm just like, there is no way that they can just be like, okay, this is $8 billion. We're going to distribute 20% of the ads that we're going to make on Peacock yes. to all of you. I feel like... <sighs> old thinking. Sorry. Old thinking. And speaking of old thinking and universal, <laughs> I think you have an AUA for me. I think we have... You might be wondering, listener, wait, isn't this still a little early for an AOA? But we realized that we wanted to talk about these other things that they aren't really main topics, but they're going to be long. So we wanted to give you a heads up in case you're the person that usually logs off when we say AOA. You're like, ah, <laughs> this, is, this, this is us actually <laughs> continuing. So we, we already teased that you watched old, and I, I want to hear more about that. But before, just because I think this might be longer... Or more like, again, like a main topic. Uh, you want to ask me first? So your AUA again. is, do you want to ask me your AUA first? Yes. What uh, What did you decide to watch at the Coolidge Theater in Boston this okay. weekend? And also, tell me about the Coolidge Theater. <laughs> yes. So for everyone who doesn't know, Coolidge Theater is this awesome independent movie theater in Coolidge Corner this area in Brookline, in Boston. And they are your, you know, typical, amazing, independent 
the place to go to see the movies. And I just want to tell you a story. Not to you, Carl, to the listener. I, we, Ariel and I walked by there last week, and we saw everything that was playing. And I was like, oh, wow, I want to see everything. I'm going to read you the main screenings. It was old. It was mm-hmm. Roadrunner. It was the Val Kilmer documentary. It was Summer of Soul, the Questlove's documentary. It was Zola. Uh-huh. And I saw that there was the Green Knight premiere on Thursday. So just between those, I was like, hey, Carl, Kevin, my friends, you like movies. You've seen some of this. What would you recommend? I just read you a list of five movies. You guys recommended ten that were playing here. You didn't help me at all. You read the fine print of the special screenings area <laughs> at the bottom that also had They Leave. They had a midnight screening of They Leave. They had a Bob Burnham inside. They had Memories of Murder by Bong Joon-ho. And then they had Paris is Burning. And then I went from having five options to Kevin and Carl telling me, oh my God, you have to watch these 10 movies. I was like, guys, this is not helpful at all. What the hell? I'm just not going to ask you anymore. So that's how good the, the programming is in College Corner. Sorry, that's where I wanted to start. So we ended up going with Roadrunner, the Anthony Bourdain Documentary, and I talked last week here about how um, uh, that I wasn't very familiar with a ton of the stuff that Anthony Bourdain did, but that mm-hmm. at least from a distance, his his brand was something that was appealing to me. Whether it was because he cared about traveling, you know, he had this mantra: be a traveler, not a tourist, or that he went to places and that he wanted to go a little bit off the beaten path, whatever it was. I, I loved the documentary. I thought it was great. It was very well paced. Uh, it's directed by Morgan Neville, who is kind of a very famed director of documentaries. Mm-hmm. He did the Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary, not the movie. He did the They Love Me Well I'm There, the Keith Richards ones, the Johnny Cash one, like a ton. I think it's great. I think it's a great introduction for people that don't know him, like me and Ariella that much. I think it would be great for people that have more details into him. But the thing that I was trying to work through that I would love your thoughts on is that I like I, I tend to have a very emotional connection with movies, which I think is something yeah. that you've realized, right? I usually, if I leave with a little bit of a message or a heartwarming or whatever, something that puts in context that I walk out or I'm driving home and I'm like, okay, you know, I want to get home. It's Sunday. Tomorrow I'm going to be better or whatever. That's kind of all that I need. And documentaries especially always kind of try to do that, right? They manage expectations. They end up with a resolution. And even if it's a, it's a different way, it's like, oh, wait, this is real. So there is even more to connect. And I realize that... I'm not going to spoil anything, but, you know, Anthony killed himself two years ago and when it's coming to the end they start asking all of this great group of people that were very close to him like you know tell us what happened they didn't they didn't ask what do you think happened or why did he did it yeah he was just like tell us what happened and people start talking or just the way the story ends up being told ends up being in a way where it's also people from the outside making assumptions and even though you come in trying to understand and try to feel something sometimes it does come through that you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody actually knows. And 
I didn't leave with a sour taste in my mouth because I really liked it, but it did leave in my mind that feeling of, especially for documentaries of, you know, people that have passed away or whatever, yeah. of how do I need to put my defense up towards this emotional reaction because it, it almost feels like, a, um, what's the right word? Like you're being when somebody pulls strings to make you feel things. A pu- like a puppeteer? Manipulator? You're, you're, yes, yes. You're being manipulated. Or you're being... I mean, not that Op doesn't do that. Or Wally right. doesn't do yeah. that. But it just, it just kind of being something that you leave. And it's like, well... And I don't know. And I was texting with... I talked with Kevin after the movie. He's like... I told him this. He's like, well, have you watched Amy? And I'm like, no. About Amy Winehouse. Because I, I kind of feel the same. Yeah. Without putting it into words. That I don't... It's a little bit difficult for me sometimes to be like... Yeah, this was super interesting. What an interesting person. Blah, blah, blah. And just rationalizing through my ways of seeing movies and connecting with what I've seen. Of just saying, like, well, I I want to keep that emotional distance a little bit away. Just so that I can enjoy learning about the person and finding it interesting and focusing mm-hmm. on that. Instead of like, this other side of how I relate to movies. Um, so that was just what I was thinking about yesterday. Of how do I relate to documentaries? And yeah. I'm not usually a documentary person. Not all the documentaries are about dead people, so sometimes it's a little bit easier to know yeah. what happened. Maybe that's why I love Icarus. It's a very obvious, clear story, transparent. The mm-hmm. people that were part of it tell you the story. Um, but yeah, that was my Sunday night. I. It's an interesting question. It's something that I don't know what the right answer is, especially around documentaries. Because... Okay. I really quite like Steve Jobs and and love the social network. Mm -hmm. They are riddled with factual inaccuracy. Mm -hmm. But to me, it doesn't matter. Because I feel like both films really, as someone who has read a lot about the founding of Facebook and the early days of Facebook and has a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of Steve Jobs's life and legacy. I feel like it really gets at the emotional truth of the actors and the actions inherent to both stories. And I think for a narrative feature film, that is fine and appropriate. Like, it, you can decry the fact that it's adapting the lives of people that have that are currently alive and and whatnot, but those people have the right to set the record straight. And I, I think the the line becomes blurrier when a documentary is posited as something like Amy or Roadrunner as fact or the real story versus. I, I mean, I'm not gonna get mad at. I'm not gonna get mad at. Michael Moore for like trying to manipulate you with Fahrenheit 9/11 or whatever. Like it's it's not like he's obviously trying to provoke. He's trying to make it's an opinion documentary more than an actual factual documentary. But I think there is something around the what you owe to the truth as a documentarian when you are presenting it as fact versus as a version 
of the facts. So with that, did you find that this film, and it's as it nears the end of Bourdain's life, was presenting fact or options of fact? I think it was presenting very objectively and directly from the people close to him what they thought okay. happened. And I think when it's a documentary about his life, it's difficult to disconnect, oh, this is what they think happened, versus, oh, this is what's being put together and caught together. This is, like, what I'm going to take away from the movie is that this is what happened. And maybe it's that extra step that is needed to disconnect from it and be like, no, this is what they think happened. Yeah. And we don't know. And that's how it ends, right? They start talking and they're like, well, he was dealing with this or he was dealing with that. And I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. And I think exactly to your point, in, in a feature, in our regular narrative film, it's a little bit easier to be like, yeah, like, you get it, it's different. In a documentary, it's a little bit, you use the word blurry, I think that's right. Um, but no, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think it was well-paced story, I mean... It's called a film, quote-unquote, about Anthony Bourdain. It's not called a documentary or whatever. But it's great. I recommend it. You talked last week about reading some of his stuff. Uh, I think you would enjoy it. Let's talk about the AI thing for a second. Yeah, so... He... They have a ton of footage of behind-the-scenes stuff, both from his documentaries, but also his stuff from before and they use a lot of that and they used to use voiceovers that he did either for documentaries or for other places sometimes in places that fit right it's him talking about something they don't tell you where it's from and yeah we talked last week that they used ai to reproduce his voice for one sentence or whatever i couldn't tell i was paying kind of attention when i I felt like it was like, oh, this is him talking yeah. and there's going to be a video about him talking. I think it's part of the same connected thing of, right? You want to squint and be like, yeah. hmm, this is a documentary, but you're trying to play with me. Like, couldn't you just have a narrator say that yeah. or somebody say that? And I guess it's kind of connected to that same feeling. I that's Yeah, that's why I bring it up. I, I think it's, it's about disclosure and honesty, and uh, Neville has refused to to say which ones directly are AI and not, and I think that that's a disservice. I mean, you would anytime it takes you, away from the yeah yeah. Anytime you you hire actors, voice actors to do recreations of voices or whatnot, you disclose that. Like, and documentarians typically will put it unknown on the screen. And I don't think it detracts from the power or detracts from the purpose. In fact, it allows you to kind of, I think, be aware of that as you're going through it. So I think that's what's shady about it. I think that's what's shady about kind of deepfake technology in general. But at the same time, there's definitely a place for it. Like there's a, uh, whenever the, the Beatles played at Madison Square Garden, it was unusable, like, you listen to those recordings, you cannot hear the Beatles. The Beatles could not hear themselves playing. It was impossible. It was 
these preteen and teenage and 20 year old girls screaming at the top of their lungs about how hot like Paul was. <laughs> but there's a, a version of the concert. I can't remember if it's MSG now or Shea Stadium. It's one of the, the big U.S. concerts from their tour where you can hear it because they just use machine learning to feed audio of the crowd and of crowds to the computer, use the original recordings and they were able to scrub out and actually isolate the music. And you can hear that for the first time in a way that nobody had ever heard it, including the Beatles. That's pretty magical. That has artistic value and merit and historical value and merit. And that's really cool. And that, that AI is good, but it should be disclosed. Like, it's just that simple. Like just admit that that's not the way it was in the world. And I think nobody would have an issue with it. Or I, at least I wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I agree. But yeah, we'll be curious whenever, if you watch it, we'd love to talk more about it. Real, Real quick. On the subject of deep fakes, did you see that Disney yes. hired that YouTuber who did all the deep fakes about how bad Disney's de-aging is and went on and, like, you know, Tarkin from Rogue One, how mm-hmm. awful he looks? Or, yeah, or Mark yeah, Hamill. Yeah, and, or, or, yeah, 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 exactly. There was a guy on YouTube who just went back and, like, he's just used deep fake software and he's like, I can, I can do this myself better than Disney. And it looks better. And it was like Disney announced this week that I ILM hired him because they're looking for good talent. And he's actually leading, helping lead a team on defect technology. That is so funny. Yeah. That's great. It's good for him. Talk about becoming famous through YouTube and then ending where you wanted to go. Very true. Hey, effect supervisors can do that too. <laughs> That's fascinating. Before asking for a DOA, I just wanted to talk about an experience that I had at the Coolidge Theater yes. that I've never had before. So the Coolidge Theater has two big. Um, theaters, like 150 people, and then it has a couple of smaller ones. And Anthony Bourdain was playing in the big ones, but yesterday night, they had Inside of Bob Burnham on the big uh-huh. one. So the screen that I went to for Bourdain was in the small theater, 45 seats. Very small, very cute, very nice. We sit down, we arrive like, it's not a science seating, we arrive like 15 minutes early, we find seats, it's nice, it starts getting full. Trailer starts, you know, we see that there is like four seats, but now they're alone. A couple comes in. Now there are two seats left. Uh And then the movie starts and we see that three people kind of come in and the entrance is in the front and they kind of peek over and they stay peeking over and they stay peeking over and you can tell they're trying to see, okay, which seats are empty, whatever. And then they leave. And I remember thinking like, yeah, they were three. I don't know if there are three spaces available. So they leave. 10 minutes later, the movie is 15, 20 minutes in. The movie stops. The lights come on. And then an employee comes in and he's like, hey, guys, sorry, but this screening is sold out and we have exact seating and there is a seat missing. So I'm going to have to check everyone's tickets. That was new. And long story short, because I want to get your reaction, he starts taking and you can see people getting their tickets out. And then one guy right in front of us pulls his ticket and he's like, oh. And he right away goes, hey, 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 come. And he's like, hey, I asked for a ticket for Bourdain. My ticket says Burnham. I think they gave me a ticket to Inside. I, I, I asked for Roadrunners. And there were still tickets available for Inside. So it wasn't like he yeah. was 
whatever. Yeah. And my thought is, okay, the employee is going to go away and he's going to bring in a chair or he's going to figure out something. Like it wasn't this guy's fault. He leaves. He leaves everything turned on. He leaves for five minutes and then he comes back and he's like, yeah, sorry, we can give you a refund, but I'm going to have to ask you to step out. <laughs> and then he, I mean, he was very nice. He was like, uh, okay, he didn't even know what to say. He was just like, uh, okay, he left and they bring these other three people who end up sitting in three different seats and the poor guy who just wanted to watch Roadrunner and they missed his ticket and I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. They stopped the movie in the middle, like 20 minutes scene for like 15 minutes and then this poor guy got kicked out. And yeah, I just wanted to share. It was the first time something like that had happened. That is a, I thought it would be a very positive, like, the magic of cinema story or something, or, like, how great an indie theater is. That nope. is, that's, that is very hostile towards He, he was very everyone. nice. He was super respectful. He was like, hey, sorry, we can give you a refund or a ticket for tomorrow or another day. It seems like there was another, I mean, I get there's fire codes and yeah, but like, care about those there's, things. There's but... another path, or at least be like... We'll buy you a drink or something. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, I don't know. That's weird. They also shouldn't have stopped the movie for that. <laughs> yeah, they stopped. These people should have, you just... know, showed up on time. You know, <laughs> exactly. That's the takeaway. Just get there before it starts. But anyway, uh, you're wow. away. You watched a movie about a beach that makes you old with one of the godfathers well one of the gods of mexican cinema right now in gal garcia how was it him and diego luna are kind of of course the epicenters of mexican actors not directors of course we know you've told us i know multiple times <laughs> and it will remind you forever <laughs> until you watch uh, amores perros hey i've seen Itu mama tambien and i've seen the terminal Diego Luna's real creepy in the terminal, so I know Mexican actors. Okay, old. Is Gal Garcia also creepy? Uh, he's not creepy. He's really good in it, though. So I don't want to go in as much of a like tailspin about old yeah, as yeah, we they're... did about about Roadrunner. <laughs> but uh, it's truly one of those things where I cannot for the life of me understand why people think this is such a disastrous film. Like, it's not... This isn't, like, a Goldfinch thing, where, like, I legitimately love the Goldfinch. Like, this is... It's it's become a bit... We know. We, we know you've told us. I, I know. I know. I know. It's become <laughs> a bit about how much I love that, but it's, like, it's not ironic, but it is self-aware. Like, I understand that that yeah. film is not for everyone, and that's fine. But I'm watching old, and I'm like... I don't know. It's about a beach that makes you old. You want realism out of this? Like, come on, people. Like, it, it's fun. It's good. Uh, Vicky... But tell me more about that. All I've seen online is that it's fine. And I've seen the memes. I haven't seen anyone being like, that. Well, but but see, that's, that's the thing. is like You're also in a... <laughs> I'm in a different Twitter. You're at a, you're at a part of Twitter. The general public doesn't seem to love old either. Like, let's see. Like... Old has a C plus cinema score. That's a pretty objective measure beyond things that can get pretty inflated on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. Like people just legitimately thought Old was a bad movie with a bad premise and bad twist and bad acting and bad dialogue. And I'm over here thinking 
This is one of those expertly directed things I've seen in a long time in a theater that's new. I legitimately was very grounded and horrified and into this film. Alex loved it. Her younger sister who saw it with us loved it. And she's a, a teenager who should be cynical about this stuff and laughing when stuff is goofy. But she was like, no, that was great. It was a lot of fun. So I just, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's good. It's great. I enjoyed it. Legitimately terrified me. Like, not in a jump scare sort of way, but, like, getting old is scary, and M. Night Shyamalan realizes that. So Is he the writer also? He's the writer. Does he write his movies? Yeah. Okay. And, hey, some of the people there are from Philadelphia, so he got Philly in there, even though it's the first film in years that hasn't been set in Philly. So, I don't know. I was here for it. And, like, I was kind of, like, when I put it at the beginning, at my year in movies preview, I was expecting it to be like, that was kind of tongue in cheek. Like I'm going to ride or die with this guy. And I knew I was going to go in there and probably like it anyway, but legitimately thought it was a very good film. Go see old, go in with an open mind. Like screw the haters. If they, if people are laughing in your theater, who cares? Ignore them. It's fun. It's good. Should I see it in my home with the lights on though? I know it's not that type of terror. It's but... not that type of terror. It's more like, wow, getting old is like scary. Your body just like kind of decomposes. That's it's hard. Wow, yikes. That's what's scary about it. It's not like, I don't know, creatures emerging from the beach that makes you old. Got it. Okay. That's good. That was a different ty- uh, take on AUAs. But I appreciate the take. <laughs> yeah, on, let's on not let's not stick to that. That was a that was a weird take on AUAs, but. Well, we're trying things. We're testing things. I think on that note, it's a, it's a good place to end. We're keeping everyone on their toes around the cartoon all-stars. But that's coming soon. Moving next week. Probably not having happening next week, so we can give you a pass. Um, but, uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, share. Share. We're, we were having a production meeting this week where we said that we might want to do some uh, in-person festivals next year. But uh, we need to get the name out. So if you enjoy it, share it with your friends. And uh, thank you for listening. Later.